Well, hello. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Doing good? It's nice to see y'all. I'm going to start here. Got a new song. Um, it's called House of the Lord. The chorus is, there's joy in the house of the Lord today. Um, that's what is so awesome. Just making a mess around here. That uh, even in this world where it's just constantly trying to strip our happiness, it can't take our joy because we know the creator of all things. There's uh, plenty of reasons to be sad and down, but at the end of the day, joy overpowers everything, and it's because of God that we have realized how he's worked in all our lives and brought us here. So I encourage you, if you haven't got there yet, to find your joy and your rest in God because outside of that, that ain't going to happen. It's never going to work, and you're going to constantly be miserable. And we have a family today. There's going to be a, a remembrance, a, a, a funeral going on. That they have, sure, a ton of sadness on them. But overpowering that, I'm sure, knowing them, that the joy of knowing that Grace is happy and healthy and running and uh, much better off than we are. Um, so that's what gets us through. So, um if you want, we'll stand, we'll sing this song, and we'll worship God. God, we're here for you today. Um, we do pray for uh, the Zimmermans and just everybody else who's got stuff going on in their lives, God, that uh, the joy of knowing you and having you in our, in our lives and the faith in you um, will get us through everything. It doesn't make everything easy, but it makes it possible. Uh, so we praise you for that. Uh, so we lift this time up to you, God. Uh, no matter what we're uh, dealing with outside of here, we just pray that we can lay that at your feet and fall into your arms, God, and just praise you with joyful, open hearts today as we hear your word, as we sing these songs. We pray for the youth as they hear uh, your message and the, uh, the seeds that are planted in them um, are being tended to. So we praise you and thank you for the volunteers and everything that goes on in their, in their lives. So we just give you this time this morning, God. Pray that you work in all of us and that we, uh, that we allow that work to happen and get out of your way. So we praise you. In your name we thank you. We thank you for the joy we have in you. All right, so this song is called Ask the Lord. I'm going to teach you the chorus real quick. I don't know, we haven't done it for a while, but everybody, everybody in here is born with an instrument. It's called the clap. So, can I warm it up and we'll give it a try? But the chorus is There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. We won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. Pretty simple. We'll try it one more time, and we're going to add our instruments. If you want to, you don't have to. But there's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. We won't be quiet, we shout out in 
We worship the God who was. We worship the God who is. We worship the God who evermore will be. He opened the prison doors. He parted the raging sea. My God, He holds the victory. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. We won't be quiet. We shout your praise. We sing to the God who heals. We sing to the God who saves. We sing to the God who always makes a way. Cause he hung up on that cross Then he rose up from that grave My God's still rolling stones away There's joy in the house of the Lord There's joy in the house of the Lord today And we won't be quiet We shout out your praise There's joy in the house of the Lord Our God is sure won't be quiet, we shout out your praise. We now we're we were the prisoners, now we're running free, we are forgiven. Accepted, redeemed by His grace, let the house of the Lord sing praise. Cause we were the prisoners, now we're royalty. We were the prisoners, now we're running free. We are forgiven, accepted, redeemed by His grace, let the house
Oh, that's a great way to start your Sunday morning, isn't it? Go out and have a seat, everybody. It's good to be with you all. I, I just always, you know, since we've come out of the pandemic, I just always look forward to being regathered again. There's something about having that as your backdrop that just makes this moment even more special. So isn't it good to just praise the Lord and just be in a place where all the static and noise of the world can just kind of calm down for a little bit, and we can just take a moment and put our attention upon all the stuff that God is doing despite what is happening in the world. And I know he's doing stuff in, in each of our lives in ways that maybe we recognize and maybe we don't. But uh, he's busy right now because there's a lot of work to do. Well, uh, I'd like to welcome everybody and welcome everybody online uh, who's joining us. Uh, we are resuming uh, the book of Luke as we left off before Lent. And we're just picking right up in the exact place where uh, we bookmarked it before. So uh, hopefully we can tune into that and we can get back into the mind of Luke and what's happening as we're following Jesus through that book. Uh, but before we get there, just want to showcase uh, one announcement. And then if you have your message outline, uh, take, uh, take a look at what is happening on the backside as far as the announcements go. Because this is a busy season for First Christian Church and it's sort of feast or famine, I think. Uh, but I do want to celebrate uh, what we did last Sunday. I think we had about 100 and 120 or so people served. 100 takeout and 50 inside. Okay, so that's not too shabby. Uh, so good job, First Christian. Uh, really glad that people are saying, what is my purpose in this moment? What can I do? And it's sort of our job to say, these are some dots that we can connect and really what we're trying to accomplish is we're getting a bead on where people are at and what God is doing uh, in their lives and how we as a church can somehow be a part of that. And that's really the question on the table and something that we want to pray about. We don't really know what those paths are, but we are trying to just find them and then go down them in a faithful way because God really is doing things and we want to be a church that's on board with that. So uh, a few things to mention here. Uh, Joy Club is going to be meeting on Wednesday, um, and so hopefully you can join us there. Uh, and then National Day of Prayer up on Thursday, and then following that, uh, uh, we're going to resume our monthly men's breakfast, uh, which oh, the grub is pretty good. Uh, any, anybody, any detractors from that statement? None that I can find. So um, it's, it's worth gathering, and Rich just does such a fantastic job. He's just coming into his own as far as uh, being able to speak and lead well, and I really appreciate that. Uh, so just keep that stuff in mind coming up, um, and hopefully in, in whatever way that God is leading you, you can engage with us. Uh, so with that said, I'd like to solicit a few prayer concerns if you have any. Definitely want to keep uh, Grace Zimmerman's family in our prayers. Uh, you guys have been on our minds a lot, and uh, we know that uh, Grace has been so beloved by our church family here that we, we also feel your grief. And we're going to miss her bucket list, you know, because you just never know what she's going to do. Uh, hey, I'm going to jump out of an airplane. So she jumps out of an airplane. As, as she's going down, she made another bucket list item. Hey, I'm going to break my ankle. Haven't done that before. So let's just do that, can we? And then she came to church, and she uh, you know, was in a 
in, in the apparatus for broken ankles, and you said something about it, and she just kind of shrugged it off like, yeah, I've been there, done that, let's move on. And, and that's sort of the way she was, you know. She just was always looking ahead to the next thing. I'll bet you she's forming a bucket list right now, only, you know, that's going to, there's no bucket anymore. It's just a list, right? And I'm so grateful that we have that hope that keeps all of the grief and all the darkness that death and the aspects of life here on earth bring to our, our doorstep. We have a hope that goes way beyond that, and uh, we celebrate that because it's a thing that keeps us going with joy. Uh, so please just keep them lifted up. Uh, anyone else have anything on your heart today that you want to you wanna offer up in prayer? Diane? All right. Yeah. Yeah. A, that's a blessing in the severe mercy, isn't it? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll just recap that for everybody. Uh, Diane's daughter-in-law, who we've been praying for, has got a pretty serious eye condition that um, it's been fraught with a lot of challenges, and you've been praying every step of the way for, for Amy, and, um, and God's been showing up in ways that we don't always predict. But Amy is going to get uh, some attention drawn to that uh, here uh, in the month of May. And uh, she also, in the process, gave her heart to the Lord. And it's just amazing what prayer does. And I had somebody come in my office this morning and shared the follow-up of a prayer concern that we've been praying about for about four or five years. And it was so amazing to see the starting point of the desperation of those prayers that, we ha that I had with this person and then the celebration that I had in my office today regarding just the change of hearts and minds and reconciliation and all of that stuff. And I bring that up because if we are asking God to do things, God is going to do them, but he's going to do them in his will and his time. But we've got to trust him. We've got to trust that he's at work. And if we trust him, then we know that it's just a matter of time before we see that uh, activity in hindsight. And so if you pray something now, just think about what's that going to look like next month, next year, five years down the road, because God always works. He just has a different way of bringing uh, uh, time expectations to bear upon it that we're not really very good at um, navigating. So keep that in mind, because in this place, things have more of an eternal timeline than they do just simply, hey, we need it tomorrow so that we can move on to the next thing. Doesn't work that way. Life doesn't work that way. So we pray, and then we record, and then we look back, and then we say, oh, thank you, Lord. So please keep that in mind.
Anything else? All right. I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing who that is. Oh, hey, Melissa. Okay, Jenny Smith, uh, double heart catheterization tomorrow. Pray for her. Okay. Anyone else? Jones. Debbie? Yeah, I just wanted to give an update on my niece, um, Ariel. Ariel? The one that was in that diabetic coma. Yes. On yeah. Board. Yeah. Cool. That's pretty scary stuff. Thankfully, it's turning out for the best. Okay, so pray for Ariel. Okay, well, let's go ahead and take all this before the Lord then, shall we? Oh, we have another one? Yes. I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just me, but I'm having a hard time seeing. Is, is it just, maybe I got, maybe I need to get some work that I am. Okay, hey, Billy. keep you lifted up in our prayers, okay? All right. Let's go ahead and... and... Joe Carroll, what are you doing here? You're sneaking in. Uh, Bi Billy, uh, yeah, Billy, yep. Okay. All right, let's go ahead and pray, shall we? Lord, it's good to be in your house and to take uh, the substance of our week and bring it before you, trusting that as we've um, looked at our lives, not just through the lens of the five senses, but also through the lens of our faith and our trust in the reality of things unseen. We are grateful, Lord, that that reality is increasingly becoming a, a, a place where we go to see how you move and how you follow through, how you are trustworthy, and it's a reality that is, is definitely uh, requires us tuning into it. And Lord, we know it starts with our prayers, and it, 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 it follows along with just the recognition of all the subtle ways that you move and work in lives and hearts, and how in dramatic fashion there are times when something emerges out of that that clearly says you have been a part of this from the beginning. And I'm thankful for people like Grace Zimmerman who very early on embraced you and looked at life through the lens of faith. And as a course of action, um, unfolded her life in a way that despite bittersweet moments, she trusted you and in the last moments, you carried her home. And I'm thankful, Father, for being with all of the people that have lifted uh, her and her family up to you. And I thank you for being with her family and carrying, carrying them in your grace and mercy. And so please be with them today as they go through a time of saying goodbye for now and just provide comfort and provide uh, rich memories that are worth celebrating and re recalling. I pray, Father, that you would be with the others that we have mentioned this morning 
that in each life and each challenge and each milestone where we celebrate, uh, you would be given glory and praise, but also as our great physician, as our healer of our souls and our bodies, our emotions, and everything that is made up of, uh, of, of, of how you fearfully and wonderfully crafted us, that it is being reordered in a life in Christ. And so may you, Lord Jesus, prevail more and more. And may you show us, Father, how we can be the people that we need to be for the moment, for the people that you see languishing in their lostness. So we ask for uh, your help and your wisdom and your eyes to see where you're leading First Christian and that you would give us who are in the leadership roles to be able to discern how we can attend to that moment, be a voice for you, Lord, and in the process, hopefully, bringing blessing and healing and everything that the, the moment warrants uh, from you, Lord, into those lives and situations. So we thank you, Father. We thank you for helping us today and helping us through these past several months. And Father, as we lift up all of, this, uh, the, all, all of these things before you, we give you praise. We are grateful because of the hope that we have for the joy that wells up in us despite the circumstances. We're thankful for your word that we're about to attend to. We pray that you would bless it and that you would speak to us through it. And align our hearts and our minds as disciples. Help us to value your priorities as we say together the Lord's Prayer. Would you say it with me now? Our, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right. Well, oddly enough, we are picking up in the book of Luke in a part of the, of the chapter that actually is a continuation of an episode uh, that, um, that we left off. And it was, a, it was an episode at a dining table. And the people at the table were really uh, the respectable religious people of the day who were meeting together and talking about the things of the synagogue or the temple or of society and asking how God fits in. And on this occasion, for the third time, they invited Jesus to the table. But their job here wasn't so much to say, teach us, Jesus, what it means to follow the ways of God, but rather to look at Jesus and say, how can we trip him up? How can we catch him out? How can we discredit him? And really, this is something that's just been building because he's actually turned the tables on them, so to speak, every time he's in conversation with them. And they don't like it. It's humiliating them. It's shaming them before the people that they're hoping to garner respect and honor from. And Jesus is going in and just burning the whole thing down. And uh, it's pretty dramatic stuff. And I want to I take what he is doing at that table 
And I hope that for you and I who are trying to figure out how to live life in the 21st century, how that table gathering has any significance whatsoever for how we relate to one another. And uh, I think we can find that uh, as we go into this text. But what I want to do is I want to sort of provide a little bit of, hey, remember this episode uh, from, from last time we gathered? And it's kind of like you know a movie that will do like a little uh, sort of flashback, and these are the scenes. I want this scene of this video to be in your mind as we're talking about this because this will help everything that is happening to make better sense than me bumping my gums for 30, 40, 50, 90. No, I'm, I won't do that to you. Let's just go ahead and show it. In the beginning was God. He's like an honorable elder with a grand yurt. He's like the great uncle we all wish for, powerful, respected, and always faithful. One day God created the mighty mountains, the warm sun, and fresh waters to showcase his glory. Then God made Adam and Eve, crowning them with great honor and glory. He said, have my authority, rule over my creation, bear my glory. They were God's children living in God's honorable village. Even with no clothes, Adam and Eve felt no shame. Then Satan appeared and said, Get more glory, eat the fruit, and be equal to God. But the second they tasted the fruit, their honor vanished. They felt shame. God found them hiding. You have been disloyal children, shaming yourselves and dishonoring me. What do we humans do with disgraceful things like dirt, pigs, and outhouses? We keep them far away to preserve our dignity. So likewise, God banished them. Adam was dejected. I have no name, no glory, no family, and no honor. I have only shame. In the shameful village, Adam and Eve had children, who had children, who had us. Do you know what it means that we are descendants of Adam and Eve? Imagine if your mom was the village prostitute, or your dad defected during battle you'd get their shame. We inherit shame, then our sin brings on more shame. So one day someone had an idea. Let's make our own honor. They created multiple groups or cultures. One said you had to wear black suits and drive Mercedes, but the other determined you have to wear orange robes and be a monk. If you maintain the group's expectations, you got some honor and status, but this honor was temporary because it was made by humans. These group rules actually increased shame by excluding some people. Even when God selected one group to bless the other groups with honor, they boasted in their election and shunned others. When people tried to create honor for themselves, they only produced more shame. The only person who could help the honorless was God, the source and essence of honor. So God became human and entered the shameful village. Could you ever imagine a big politician with a mansion going to live in a trash dump? That was Jesus. Jesus was amazing. One time a bleeding woman snuck up and touched him, and he wasn't defiled or shamed. She was purified and dignified by Jesus. He loved and accepted everyone regardless of their shame. Jesus spoke of a great feast where the disgraced and dismissed were honored guests. Following Jesus, not the cultural rules, 
makes people acceptable and worthy. But the people living for earthly honor were threatened by this. So Jesus was arrested, mocked, whipped, spat on, and nailed upon a cross. He was covered in shame publicly. Why? Why would one perfectly honorable person be so shamed? The shame Jesus bore was not his own. He bore our shame. And then Jesus fully defeated that shame. He rose from death to glory. Jesus crossed back to God's village and got a great name and place of honor. Jesus' resurrection from the dead built a new bridge from death to life, from earth to heaven, from shame to honor. Finally, people could get what they always wanted, true and eternal honor from God. But not everyone followed Jesus to God's village. Some were content with the false honor they accumulated. A few thought their shame too great even for God, and others feared what relatives might think. But some trusted that Jesus took their shame and followed him. To them, God gave a new robe, hat, and inheritance documents. Humans were back in God's village. They lived honorably ever after. Okay, so you guys got all that? Because there'll be a test at the end. Actually, there'll, there'll always be a test on this. Uh, when you look at what God accomplished on the cross, uh, we had guilt and there was forgiveness. We had shame and there was honor brought back to us through what happened in him and through him. All of that restored. There was captivity where we were bound basically by the dominion of evil, and then there was deliverance, where we are now brought into a space where we can enjoy the kingdom and all the realities in the microcosm of where we live as followers of Jesus, how that affects how we look at life with a hope, with a sense of peace that passes all understanding, with a joy that doesn't come from anywhere except from within, through Jesus' presence with us. All of those things are really what have been accomplished on the cross. And, and the one aspect in our culture that we can't really relate to as well anymore, because we live, we've lived for a long time in what I would say a culture that doesn't have a lot of shame. There just isn't. I mean, people just do whatever they want to do, and there's no like social repercussion. Now, I do know that with social media now, shame is sort of coming back into vogue. And if you do things or say things that aren't necessarily what other people are saying you should say or think, you do get shamed. You get outed. You get, you get sort of pushed aside. And nobody wants that. But it's particularly bad whenever you come into a church and you feel like, I can't be here because, well, I don't quite fit. I don't quite think the same. I don't have the vocabulary. I don't know all of the religious stuff. And I've done a lot of bad things. And the reality is, you are exactly the person that Jesus came into the world for. You know, John says, I, I came not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through me. And his goal is really to take all the brokenness of your life and mine and to recast it in such a way that we look more and more like him. But he takes it a step further by saying, I want to do that by incorporating you into a community where no one is excluded. 
Have you ever been a part of a community where people said, hey, you're not one of us? Or have you ever been one of those communities where you looked at other people and said, well, we're kind of in a better place than you are. We can sort of tell you what to do. And when Jesus sees that happening, he gets very frustrated. Because by design, it isn't about us creating these artificial groups. You know, show that slide real quickly uh, from, from that video where if you look at the people on the left, you know, the, 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 the fancy car, fancy clothes, looking at other people and saying, hey, you know what? This is a special club. I know what you're thinking. That's you and Brian. Because the fact is we have a special club. Uh, we, drive, we drive what's technically called a Mopar. You know, a Dodge, Challenger, Charger. Plymouths are okay. Even Chryslers are fine. You can be a part of that group. But you got to say that you got to drink the Kool-Aid. And we have two little candidates in our kids' wing right now who we're kind of vetting for our group. They're not old enough to drive. They're still kind of in elementary school, but they'll get there. Um, but we're trying to show them, hey, we see potential in you. We want to show you the way. So when I see them in the hallway, I just say, hey, Mopar, no car. And they go back, hey, Mopar, no car. And I'm like, yeah, you guys, you're not quite in yet. You're candidates. But there will come a day when you can be in that circle. Poor Brittany, you know, we'll go to a staff meeting, be me and Brian and Brittany. I drive a Dodge, Brian drives a Dodge, Brittany drives a Nissan. So even when we have our conversation, there's still even a smaller group in that group. And then she'll be over off to the side with sort of bored look on her face, rolling her eyes and stuff. And I'm like, she does not comprehend the significance of who we are. One of these days. Well, if you take that sort of into uh, a more serious sphere, the world that Jesus walked into was actually defined by groups of people. And it was the Roman way. It was how they controlled things. And it was based on a system where you gave gifts, and when you gave gifts, you expected in return honor, loyalty, saying good words about me. So if I was a rich person and I, I gave Jerry a gift of, of a new car, and he's like, oh, that's so aggressive. Don't mention it. But then a little bit down the road, I may say, hey, Jerry, got a favor. And, you're li- and Jerry's like, can't do it. Shame. I'm going to make him pay. And that is exactly the way they functioned in the world that Jesus walked into. You see, you couldn't have a relationship with another person unless you followed those rules. And one of the most defying things that Jesus did, because that was even the type of mindset that the religious leaders had, because they loved their honor and they constructed it well, Jesus said, that's not the way it works in my kingdom. That may be how it works in the world that you live in, where you have generous benefactors giving you stuff, but also knowing that there is an expectation in return. You have people saying you can be a part of our group as long as you follow these rules. And then you have Jesus coming and saying, there's really only one group, human beings made in God's image. 
That was the original design. We were on the other side of the divide, and we were there with him. And we weren't worried about being better than other people because everything that we needed in terms of our self-worth, he gave us. It wasn't even a question until we left the garden in our shame. And we had to do something to recover the honor. And so what better way than to form a group that says we're important? We are important. And the way groups are here on earth in that model, you're either in or you're out. You're either an insider or an outsider. With Jesus, it's I potentially want everyone Everyone, everyone to be an insider. I don't want any outsiders. Matter of fact, if you're outside, it means that you're actually being held captive by your shame, your guilt, or by the evil one. And I have come to destroy that. And yet when I see my people playing insider, outsider, we're a good group, they're not such a good group or we're better than they are, I'm just seeing the rule, the relationship rules of the devil back at work again. And you honestly can't have that in the church because to the degree that you have it will be the degree that you're being disobedient to what we're finding here. Now, you may be saying, hey, pastor, you're saying a lot of tough stuff there. You haven't even read the text yet. What does it say? Well, we're going we're gonna to get there in, in, in just a second. And as we do, I, I just want you to understand what's happening in the world that he's walking into. It's not just the fact that I'm going to tell you good news in a vacuum and you're going to be saved. No, you're going to actually pay a price. Because the minute you say, I follow Jesus, is the minute doors start to close. Now, there may have been a time and a place in America when you said, I follow Jesus, and doors opened. But we are not in that moment. It is going to be more costly for us to follow Jesus than ever. And the last thing I want to do as a pastor is to not speak to that, to just kind of let it all sort of unfold, and then you sort of going into those things, ill-equipped, not realizing yeah, I got to compromise my beliefs here if I'm going to fit in. I got to kind of behave and think and value like you do if I'm going to fit in. But Jesus said there is a cost to following me. And you got to take it seriously. And in this case, he's deadly serious. And Luke is writing this book if you if you're familiar with uh, the 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 path that we've been going on for so long. Um, he's writing this book to a guy that is believed to be not Jewish, named Theophilus. And he's probably a pretty wealthy guy, which means that he's embedded in social situations where you got to behave under certain rules. And they won't even invite you to their table to eat if you're not following those rules. And what happens at that table is actually everything that matters. I don't know what happens at your table. I mean, we eat fast food now, so, you know, it's like we don't even have tables anymore. But back in the day, 
When you were invited to the table, that meant something. That said a lot of things. It said that we accept you. It said that we've got some business to do. It said that you have a place in our group. We're trying to figure out where you fit. And so everybody, according to the Roman rules, looked at the table a lot differently than you and I look at the table. And even in the Jewish world, the table was showing up all over the place because it seems like important things happen at the table. And we probably lost that in the modern realm, but back in the day, that's where business conversations happened. And have you ever had a friendship with somebody and you invite them over to eat or they invite you over to eat? Then all of a sudden, you're sort of unguarded, and you just kind of just shoot the breeze, and it's relaxed, and you're like, man, I, I really didn't know that person until we sat down and had a meal together. There's just something about a table that brings that level of intimacy, which also meant in an honor-shame culture, you didn't let just anybody at that table, only the people you trusted, only the people that had the same shared interests that you have. Only the people that were abiding by the values of that group. Those were the only ones. So here's Jesus. He's wanting to save everybody. But he also knows that not everybody's allowed to be with everybody. And if you're thinking I'm making this stuff up, you know, the book of James talks about two guys that show up at church one day. One guy is dressed to the nines, he's got the best gear on, he's sharp, he's got it together, he's got jewelry, he's got the bling. That's street language for those of you who, you know, recognize my credibility there. Um, and then there's a guy who has really, he shops at Goodwill, if he's lucky. Now when the one guy comes in who's really looking sharp, people are flocking around him. The other guy comes to church, and he doesn't have much going for him. People are like, hey, you can sit back. You can sit right there. Nobody sits up there. You can sit there. We say that for you. And James is like, you are playing by the rules of the world. These are not Jesus' rules. He worked very hard to deconstruct these rules. But he also worked very hard to put some rules in place that I think we have to pay attention to. And I want to look at this passage of Scripture through the lens of what Jesus is doing here to rewrite the rules. So if you, if you have your Bibles, we're just going to read uh, this story. Because I honestly believe that um, uh, the high cost of discipleship may result in loss of friends, the loss of social status, and even the death of our own vanity. That is that sense of, I got to project to everybody, hey, this is who I am. I'm somebody who has social value. I've carefully curated my persona, both online and offline, to say, I am somebody. And Jesus goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with all of those things that you and I have to face when we interact with people outside of the church. And 
I'm concerned as a pastor that this may be a problem. This may be a challenge. It has been for me. I mean, there are times when I, I skirt around the fact that I'm a pastor because I feel like as soon as I do, the rules change. Language gets cleaned up, which is kind of nice. Uh, people become sort of more superficial, and all of a sudden it's like, hey, am I looking at the same person? There is something that changes when Jesus changes you. And so you have to count the cost, but I'm not trying to look at this through the glass half empty as much as the glass half full, but I'm just telling you these are things that we will have to process. And hopefully as a church we can help you do that. Now, back in the, in the book of Luke, a couple things happened at the very beginning which set the tone. Jesus came out and he preached from the scroll in Isaiah and he quotes a passage that says, um, he has, I, I have come into the world so that I may have good news for the poor, for the oppressed, for the blind, for those who are held captive. And Luke sort of hangs on to that theme. And even Mary, when she says the beautiful saying that she does upon the announcement of the birth or the, 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 the fact that she's going to give birth to the Messiah, she says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. And essentially, it's the same sentiment that Luke has all, all along. And it's not just you're financially poor, but poor can mean a variety of things that have to do with our deprivation. It could be poor self-worth. It could be poor financially. It could be poor socially. It could be poor spiritually. It could be just whatever it is that you are lacking. He has come to offer good news. Now, the reason I've gone to all of this trouble to frame what you're going to read is I want you to read it with an understanding that Jesus is undoing something that is going to create a lot of problems for believers. And I want you to see it, but I also want you to know that if Jesus came to bring good news, I'm not up here to just condemn and say, don't do this, don't do that. I'm up here to say, let's name what's happening. Let's ask how it fits into Jesus' new vision. And then let's live that new vision in a way that tells the world there's a better way. Okay? So here's what we read. Jesus sitting down at this table, and basically they're out to get him. He said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, that is, you know, all the people that are in your group or the people that you want to be part of their group. Let's say invite you in return, saying, hey, you're in our group. You're repaid. No, don't do that, because that's what everybody does. And that's not what I'm about. But he goes on to say, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they can't repay you. They may owe you, but they'll never repay you. 
for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You see, up to this point, it was like, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. And sometimes we get into this sort of like agreement, like, God, I'll give you this if you give me this back. And God wants to tell you and I, you can't earn it. There's something of value here that's my gift. And Jesus is going there with that, but let's go on. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to just stop for a second and see where this guy's coming from. This guy really is thinking, meaning our people, everyone meaning our people. And he's not thinking about those people. He's thinking about just the people at the table. Now, Jesus said some words that sound good and stuff in front of the Bible, but he's saying essentially, as I've read you know, a lot of background on this, he's saying in effect, um, yes, blessed is it, are our people. And Jesus kind of calls him out on it. So we're going to continue. Um, but he said to him, okay, how about this? A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time uh, for the banquet, he sent out his servant to say to those who had been invited. You know, so the invitations had already gone out. They'd been on Pinterest. They found the perfect invitation. They sent it to them. They received it. And they said, oh, so-and-so's having a party. Question mark. Should I go? wonder what other people are thinking. wonder if they're going. You ever been invited to a party and wondered, well, I'll go if those people are going. You ever know anybody like that? But if those people aren't going, I'm not going. Jesus is sort of going there. And so the invitation sent out. People had it. They're thinking about it. They're even talking about it. And then the time comes for the meal. It's ready. No expense has been spared. And this guy is hoping that he's going to make a big splash. What happened? In the meantime, they thought about it. And they're like, Mm-mm. not going. So they began to make excuses. And Jesus kind of makes a little bit of a joke here, and I'm gonna, I'll, I'll show you why. This is what they said. The first guy said, I bought a field, and I must go see it. Please have me excused. Next guy said, I bought a yoke of oxen. I got to go check them out. You're going to have to excuse me. Next guy said, well, I married a wife. And Jesus doesn't fill in the blanks. And well, therefore I can't come. And what he's trying to say here is, you guys don't want to be there. You don't want to be there. And some people actually believe he's saying, Luke is writing this, not to a Jewish audience, but to an audience of people, some of them wealthy. And if you read the book of Acts, there's a number of actually higher, upper, middle-class, upper-class people who become believers. And I think he wants to show them it's going to cost you. This is not going to be tolerated by the Roman culture. Friends will shut you out. When you follow Jesus, they will make excuses not to show up at your party, which is code language for you are no longer one of us. You are no longer able to have access to the things that we can give you. 
you are no longer even a person to us. That's all in there. And so it unfolds even further as we go. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. And the master of the house, I want to stop for a second again. There are two ways you can look at this. The master being God, but there's some things in here that don't make any sense because why would God invite only the exclusive people and then when they don't show up, go to the second string option? So some people say that if you're the master of the house, this is what you are going to have to deal with because many of the things that occur in your world happen around the table. You know, now at the golf course, you know. John's not able to make as many deals when it rains on the golf course, right? But you get, you get what I mean. And he's saying the rules are going to change. And it's going to be hard. And if you are a person of honor, you may pay a steep price. Because the social furniture is about to be rearranged so that we can become one even as the Father and I are one. And Jesus is creating the conditions where the rules that are getting in the way of us being one are going to have to be rethought. Even the Apostle Paul, when he's writing in 1 Corinthians, he's talking about this table, and he says, some of you guys, when you gather, you sit over there, and then you shut these guys out over here, and he is mad. I mean, he is hopping mad, because he knows the prayer of Jesus, that they would be one, and if there's one place that God says, I want you to be one. It is at the foot of the cross that says we are all equal. And we start our life here on earth as followers of Jesus from that place of total dependence on him for our honor, for our worth, for our sense of who we are in this world. And Sometimes I think that doesn't settle in very well as we think about, hey, I, I follow Jesus, I'm saved, that's all that matters. But then I come to church and then people say, they're, they're cliquish, or I don't fit in, or I don't belong. And Jesus is an anticipating this, and he's saying, they cannot be one as the Father and I are one. What if God and the, and the Son said, hey, Holy Spirit, it's just us over here, and you over there. Yeah, we're doing the same thing together, but you can do it over there, we'll do it over here. You don't see that happening. It just is not the way of the kingdom, okay? So Jesus is saying, go out in the streets uh, because I am just not happy with the fact that I have been shunned by all of the people that I have invited and meanwhile, back at the ranch, the people are talking like, we'll show him. We didn't show up. He, he stepped across the line somewhere, and we're going to make a point. This is a big deal. I, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll close it out real quickly. Uh, 
and, and then I'll, I'll show you what happened in response to Jesus in the Roman Empire. So, and the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done, and there's still room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now, you could look at that through the lens of God, and it definitely would apply. But you could also look at it through the lens of a person who says, I am a human being of means. God has given me the gift of being able to make money. I'm going to show honor to people that the rules of the world say you can't. You can give them money from a distance, but don't get too close. I'm going to say, come on in. Because now, when I look at you, I don't see you as, well, you're a Roman, or you're a freedman, or, you know, you're, you're an upper echelon slave, or you're a lower echelon slave, or you're in the outcast. I look at every one of you now, and I say, you're made in God's image. Somebody stole something from you. Somebody has tried to deface you. Somebody has taken your whole birthright, and I want you to know it. And I want you to come to my table because you are more sacred than the world has ever implied. And through the eyes of a bloodstained cross, I see it, and it's worth it. And there were a lot of people who were following Jesus that received this letter from Luke, and this is a few generations after Jesus, perhaps, we're having to say, I got to look at people differently. I got to see them through a new category as having dignity, as being made in God's image, as being equal to me at the foot of the cross. My capabilities may be different, but when God sees us all, it's like any of us seeing our own children. They're all different. We have various degrees of happy with you, not happy with you. But we love them like our own. And we do anything for them. And when God says, I want to do, I will do anything for anyone that's made in God's image, he's saying to you and I, the church, that means I want to do it for you. There's no room for insider-outsider group rules here. There are people outside, and we want to we get them to see that there's a table waiting for them that has their name on it. And as Jesus is saying this, they're not sure what to do with him because he's definitely upset some rules here. Some of these guys, they've worked pretty hard to get to this place. I mean, you start out young, and the last thing your parents want you to do is to go off and get a trade or something like that. Every mother is looking at their son and saying, I wonder if he's going to be a great rabbi. You know, they don't say that anymore. Hey, I wonder if he's going to be a preacher. It used to be a thing. Be like, that's the best occupation you could ever have. It's the highest calling. And some of those guys, they won the lottery, and they got vetted. And they got pushed through the system. And then they got mentored by key rabbis. 
They got esteem. They got honor. They became the Apostle Paul in some form. And they're like, we worked hard to get here. We were both blessed, fortunate, and we deserve the honor. And the Apostle Paul, who had all of that stuff, who could have sat at this table, could have even been one of those people, said in Philippians, used to have it all, but I've come to know Christ. I've come to see people different. And all that stuff, all that honor stuff, it's all made up. It's all fake. It's all a way of shutting people out. It's all a way of feeling good about yourself for a little while, but in the end, you cannot undo the shame that you have between yourself and God unless a blood-stained cross has interfer- interfered with that, with that dynamic, has changed that dynamic in a way of saying, you're now honored. Because when I see you, I see Jesus. And when you're in the kingdom, you not only know it, you feel it. That's what's at stake here. Now, the Romans weren't too happy about this. There's even a guy named Pliny the Younger. And he's looking at these people of all social status gathering in the same place, celebrating the Lord, disrupting the whole social order of gift-giving, patronage, loyalty, honor, all of those places that you jockey for position for so that you can be on top of the food chain. He's looking at it and he's saying, they are wrecking the way that we control the social order. And so here's what he writes. He writes to Emperor Trajan, the matter seems worthy of your consideration, especially in light of the number of persons at risk. For numerous persons of every age and every class and both genders are being brought to trial. You see, this is kind of where it's going. It becomes a legal matter. They're saying, is, this guy, is there anything in the Roman law that this guy is doing something wrong? Find it and arrest him. And they're, 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 they're not being religious in the way that we need to be religious. Call them out. They are being brought to trial, and this is likely to continue. It is not only in the towns, but in the villages and the countryside. It's everywhere, as well as they are all infected. They are infected with this perverse superstition called Christianity. It's disrupting the social order. Well, I'll tell you what. If Christianity is disrupting the social order, it's probably doing the right thing. Because Jesus came into this world, and he said, the world doesn't know me. The world doesn't recognize me. Jesus came into the world, and he said, this world, you'll have trouble. In John, he says, the devil is the ruler of this world. So in this world that you and I are born into, that is telling us what to do and how to think, It's telling us how to shape our belief, how to determine our perspective, and how to guide your decisions. That world, you know, what is it that shapes your belief? Right now, we are having our belief reshaped regarding our sexuality. I mean, we may say, well, everybody knows this is how you do it, but there's a creational design that maybe we haven't talked enough about. 
And maybe we have to be responsible in reforming and forming our people regarding what sexuality is. Because we're getting a lot of signals that are very bold saying, this is your sexuality. This is the way it is. And we have to say, there's a different way. We're not judging them. We're just saying that this is a very fruit-bearing way of doing it because the maker designed it. And by design, he's saying, ask me and you'll be blessed. We can't just let the world write the script on shaping our belief, determining our perspective, guiding our decisions. It is not a world that says we're favorable to Christianity. I mean, I, I kind of started my life out in that world, but I'm not seeing that world now. I even know people have said, we don't want to have kids because the institutions of this world are not healthy. We're not going to get supported from them, and we know there are forces to be reckoned with. And so they're like, hmm, it's not going to be a good thing. And I think that's really sad. And I think if you're going to have kids, you are going to face that. And you need a church that's strong enough to say, how can we help you with these things? How can we form you along the ways of the creational design? How can we form you in a way that brings the form of Jesus into your life and transforms you? These are the things on the table. They say two in five churches will shut down in five years. I think the question is, are those churches being who we're supposed to be in this time? And if not, I'll say God will probably just pull the plug. Really, I, I just believe it. That's why we're in a critical moment. I'm not saying we can't have fun. I'm not saying we can't have joy. But I am saying that we do have to be deadly serious about our work. Because the world isn't going to, it's just going to roll, it's just going to steamroll us. It's not happy. We're... That, those words could have been written today. A stupid superstition from the past. But I think you're in this room like I'm in this room because I'm not a snob when it comes to looking at the past saying, well, we're in a better place now. I know human nature well enough to know. I read the Bible and the patterns are pretty much the same. There are things that we ought to do, but we don't. So this is the state of affairs. This is what it is. And then there's one who comes into our world that says, through me you can. And then he holds out something that says, and beyond this, I will. I will. I will reclaim this. Because it's been stolen. And I hope my church understands that. The, uh, the, the way that we relate to one another, stolen. The way that we conduct our sexual interaction as creational design, stolen. The way that we think about who provides for us and where our resources come from, stolen. And I could just go through the list. But when your eyes get opened up to this, you're like, um, 
it's not a perverse superstition, but really just a diagnosis of reality and a solution. Jesus anticipates this church, and he's trying to show us. It will cost us, but I still bring good news. The high cost of discipleship challenges us to accept people we would normally associate with and learn to love them and then find out when they're no longer with us we're heartbroken. The high cost of discipleship challenges us to rethink the social rules of the world because they'll tell you, hey, get your group and then tell everybody who's not in it you're not so much. This is a group that says, in Christ, you can do all things. In Christ, you can defeat even death. In Christ, you can overcome. In Christ, you can find a new identity. In Christ, you can look in the mirror and you can say, I'm a child of God. In Christ, we can say, I have worth because... The most important eyes ever see me and say, you're worthy. And we look at the world and it says, get in your lane. Find your place. Sit down. Now, I went to the new creation and God said, get in your lane. Find your place. Sit down. I'd be like, well, I have ADHD, but that's just an aside. I don't think he would say that. I would think that would be my definition of hell. I can't be who I'm supposed to be. And so there are rules that we just have to say. Some you have to break, and some you have to honor because those are the ones that matter. And those are the rules of the kingdom. And the high cost of discipleship challenges us to embrace the new rules of the kingdom. What are, what are the new rules? Love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. How about we start there? And when God sees you, he says... I do love the Father with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. We just celebrated that. And you are my neighbor. And if I have to die for you, I will. I love you that much. I don't know if this recalibrates your sense of how you relate to other people, but it certainly recalibrates mine. But the only way you can get to that space is you have to settle it with the Lord. You have to receive his forgiveness from your guilt. You have to receive his honor in exchange for your shame. You have to recognize that you live in either one of two domains. You either consent to live for the world and its ruler and rules, or you consent to live for the king and his 
way of life, which is more like a path. You just follow him. There's nothing like it. And every Sunday, we try to showcase that. We pray that God will work in your hearts to see it. If I can't say it or Brian and the praise team can't lift it up or Matt and the kids and the volunteers can't make it real, we trust that the Holy Spirit will do what needs to be done. And he may be working in your life. And maybe you need to surrender and say, I do need a Savior. I need a King. I need a Lord. I need a new group. And we hope that we are a worthy group for you to be a part of. Would you bow with me? Lord Jesus, I know I've taken up a lot of time in this sermon, but I pray, Father, that we recognize that as you see this world in all of its captivity, you see people that have had stolen from them things that they didn't even know they had. You see people that have been lied to and told so much propaganda for so long that they just assume it's true. I pray, Father, that you help us to see your son and to behold his face and to recognize your deep love for us and knowing that we are products of a broken world. We are damaged goods. We have things that we are still trying to undo and have for years. And yet you still are patient with us and kind to us and love us and are working to transform us. Where one day we will be everything you called us to be but only through Jesus. And I pray, Lord, there isn't a person in this room, not a person online, that is disconnected from the reality of Jesus. So thank you, Father, for speaking to us through your word. Bless each heart here that is attentive to receiving what you have. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's one more facet before you get rid of me. And that involves this cup, which is our way of going back in time to another table. We're sort of all seated wrong for table, but we'll make it work. And when Jesus opens up all of the seating for the table, and he says, I've, I've, I've made this for you. I've invited you here. There are no social rules here except for one. This table is only possible because it is based on my shed blood that allows you to take part, that allows you to have conversation, that allows you to be free, to be able to feel safe, that allows you to be yourself. And if you have things on your heart that you need to talk to God about, whether it's forgiveness or overcoming shame or just deep gratitude, this table is a place 
where you can bring that too. And because of the bloodstained cross that is the whole premise behind this table, you're forgiven. You're set free. You're made right. You are included. You are my family. As his family in that way, let's take this together. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. because 
we pray, we pray to you, a living Savior. We are in no danger of those who are in you, of falling away as, as you are in no danger of dying again. You live forever, and those in you will as well. So help us, because of this, to endure whatever we might face in this world, and let sin that is in us not endure, because one day it will no longer have a position, a place, a real estate within us. So let it not now expose to us those things that we need to turn from, things that we think, arguments that we work at having. And for the joy set before us of being with our God, let us leave those things behind and look full on the face of Christ Jesus and find the joy that we can't otherwise. And it's for your powerful and perfect, holy, righteous, and living name we pray. Amen.